0: Monday.
1: That's your poem? No,
0: it isn't, actually. That's the first word, but I thought it'd be cool if I just kind of introduced it. and, You know, like, those very abstract poets who are like, Monday.
1: They start bowing?
0: Yeah.
1: Waiting for the applause? You, or the have, to, you have to
0: infer the meaning. Mm. But, I mean, it's an episode about school, so, so education, Mondays. it's Monday.
1: Sure. But
0: the poem goes, Monday, I'm here. All my little futures smiling back at me. Chalkboard, cursive. Little fingers poised to copy me. And that's kind of a first stanza. Hmm. And I would be sprinkling the rest of the poem in through the episode. I thought it would be kind of a cool narrative thing. Mm -hmm. I just now thought of that. But that's actually all I wrote of the poem.
1: Interesting. Because I
0: didn't really know where to take it.
1: That's fine. Yeah. I was going to try and write a poem for the episode, as you asked me, but I didn't. Next week. Next week, yes. That'll be my time to shine my comedic poetry that sometimes graces this podcast. So welcome back to Solocene, and welcome if you're new. We are a podcast that envisions the ideal future that is beautiful, sustainable and tactile. And we are currently in our second semester, which is covering the idea of education in the Solocene. And you can watch us on YouTube if you're just listening. And if you're watching us on YouTube and you're sick and tired of our faces. I don't blame you. Yeah. (laughs)
0: But well, we're everywhere else. So first question that we're talking about today is the role of one-on-one mentorship in the solo scene. Mm. I like today's episode because so far, the previous what, four episodes in the series, we have been very systemic. We've been talking about education as just this kind of concept. You know, it's a, it's a school board, it's a curriculum, it's standardized or it isn't. How can we kind of overhaul it? But today, it's like we're recognizing more the individuals that comprise even the most standardized and kind of micromanaged systems.
1: Yeah, for sure. When it comes to mentorship, I was reflecting on my school experience. And I wouldn't say in particular that I ever had a mentor. No. Had mentors of sorts, but no specific one person who was a mentor to me.
0: I don't think it's that common outside of films. I'll Mm -hmm. be honest with you. I don't think it's that common. But I also started with my own experiences, and I went along the similar path. I was thinking, well, who were my mentors in life, in sports, in family, in school? Mm -hmm. And you you come up lacking. I think part of it is because it's difficult to assess your own life like that. Like if Mm -hmm. some if because we're familiar with them, so you'll be like, oh, well, yeah, my dad, but he doesn't count. Or like, oh, Mm but this this. guy from church, but they don't really count or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, I think if someone one from the outside was maybe looking at your wife, be, it'd be easier for them to assess. But so I started looking at movies. Mm-hmm. And the best example I could think of, very topical for education, was in Dead Poet Society, mm-hmm. Mr. Keating.
1: I was thinking of him a lot in this episode as the, well.
0: The teacher we all wish we had, mm-hmm. or just Robin Williams in general. But in that movie, man, what, a, what just a, a spark of life and energy Mm -hmm. and inspiration
1: for sure. That's what mentors are based on all of my research and my experiences. They're people who are excited about life or excited about the topic that you're interested in and they kind of imbue you with some of that excitement and raison d'etre and mentors, I was looking into their effect because you never know. You can think that something's really good for you and it's not. Yeah. But they are, in fact, proven to be incredibly good for development at all ages Mm -hmm. of life.
0: Yeah, I went on the website Mm youth.gov, which is kind of like a little brother, big brother uh, type program that they have.
1: Yeah.
0: You know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. And I would list some of the statistics, but they were just all positive. So it felt kind of silly to cherry pick them. But in Mm -hmm. terms of graduation, in terms of dropout rates, in terms of drug use, in terms of grades, in terms of the better relationships of the students, the kids who mm-hmm. have the mentors with other people in their lives, with their other family members, with their other peers, with their teachers, yet yeah, just healthy.
1: Yeah,
0: I, I've never really subscribed to the, the people who are, who are kind of like anti-nuclear family and think, you know, people should be raised like entirely in tribes, mm-hmm. but there's definitely an element of that. I mean, you should, I think that kids should have more than two positive adult role models for sure.
1: For sure. Yeah, there's somewhere in between probably just a child being flung into a community (laughs) and said, here, everyone, take care of them. And just having what we currently, it seems, there's like two adults in your life or oftentimes one adult in your life who is a role model or a mentor to you. And there's certainly a difference between a mentor and a role model, which I feel like was useful when thinking about my own experiences. Mm. There were a lot of role models in my life, but there were only a few people over the years who have genuinely looked at me and taking the time to invest in growing my passions ah. or helping me out because mentorship is a bit more intentional than role modelship because role models don't have to know you exist
0: exactly so it's like an, an it's like a, a two-sided thing mm-hmm. it's like um i don't know joe biden could be a role model but he's mm-hmm. not your mentor yeah it's kind of like that i had a quote about it also Because just about that dynamic of it's the young person or the younger person typically looking for the mentor and accepting the mentorship and also the older person typically or the more experienced person providing it. Mm -hmm. And the quote is, if you cannot see where you are going, ask someone who's been there before. Mm -hmm. And what I was thinking about that is it's often the youth who struggle with like keeping up their end of mentorship. Mm -hmm. I don't think that people our age and especially younger – really are familiar with and comfortable with seeking out help from people older than them. We don't really know how to do it. We don't, we, we don't really feel like it's something to do. Like it just doesn't occur to us, I think. Yeah. So when when you're lacking those mentors, you don't notice them. That's, mm-hmm. that's part of the problem, I think.
1: Yeah, for sure. I was watching a TED Talk on mentorship and the woman who was speaking, she was saying, oh, there's always those people who are older than you in those previous generations who say, oh no, I'm a self-made man. I didn't go to school for this or what have you. But nine times out of 10, that person had a mentor who taught them. So it wasn't them perhaps going to school or taking a traditional route by our standards, but it was a traditional route by their standards of, oh, well, this craftsman taught me how to do all this stuff. And then I took over their business or I took over doing something really similar to them. And I really like mentorship as a concept and think it will be a key part of the solo scene.
0: I agree, and I kind of broke that presence down into three different uh, areas, I guess, mm-hmm. so I thought of mentorship in school, mm-hmm. teachers, etc, mentorship with other children, mm-hmm. and also mentorship outside of school mm-hmm. and in school, obviously this is kind of um, closest to what we've been talking about so far with teachers and dead poet society. Mm-hmm. I think a key part of of increasing would you say the connection or just the the modeling behavior between teachers and students, not just with regards to the calculus they're teaching,
1: mm-hmm.
0: is schools kind of uh, taking off the clamps a little bit and letting teachers express their personality and just their humanity in ways that, you know, maybe can can color the one hour of smart board equations. You know what I'm talking about? I, that's one of the things I loved about university, actually, was that I've, mm-hmm. it was funny because all through high school, they were telling us that in university, where well, your professor is going to be so distant from you. It's a giant mm-hmm. lecture hall um, and it won't be such a close relationship as it is in the classrooms in high school. But I found it to be the opposite. I thought the the professors showed a lot more of themselves and I I got a much more of a grasp of who they were than I did my, my high school teachers, actually.
1: Yeah, for sure. You had that one teacher who really loved birds, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, she did.
1: Yeah, and, <laughs> and you'd teach like the lectures about... Conservation as a whole, right? Yeah. But then when you get to the bird topics, it'd be super mm.
0: Well, that, that's always, super it's always excellent when teachers are enthusiastic about things. I, I love mm. that. Whatever the topic, because you, even if it's a topic that you really don't like, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. not much of an ornithologist myself, but it's you true. just, you can't help but take some of that passion mm-hmm. into you. Yeah.
1: For sure. Getting back to Dead Poets Society. And you said just the freedom to express yourself in that movie. He doesn't have the freedom. He has to kind of hide it, right? Yeah. He can't actually just be like shouting Keats or whatever from the <laughs> rooftops, but he still did it. And so in the solo scene, we would facilitate that type of classroom or that type of school environment in which teachers are allowed to be crazy. Going back to Hogwarts for the hundredth time in this series, the teachers are allowed to do stuff that they wouldn't be allowed to do in normal classrooms because it wasn't too standardized. It was right. just okay, this week we're going to be learning about flopper worms or whatever. Yeah. And then next week we're going to be learning about unicorns. And that was just all up to the teacher. It wasn't mm. mandated. And then that allowed the students to build relationships and understand the teachers, which is the key to good learning is if there's respect that comes from authority and from experience instead of just, they're your teacher, you have to respect them. Right. The respect has to be kind of earned by like both ways. By expertise and experience, and proving that you're someone to look up to, I suppose.
0: No, I think I think Hogwarts is a really good example because there's just what. How many teachers pass through that school in the Mm. in the six years that we that we spend there in the books and movies? It's a lot of different teachers. They have a range of different teaching styles. I mean, I know it's a magic world, but (laughs) it's it's just a full spectrum of of Mm -hmm. stuff and autonomy that the teachers show. So I would say. I mean, in real life, the teachers can't be just choosing punishments willy-nilly like does yeah. uh, Mad-Eye in the fourth book, but it would be great if teachers could have the freedom to completely decorate their classrooms how they wanted, and mm-hmm. in a lot of today's schools, that's not allowed, which is, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's an example. Or having whatever kind of pets they want in the classroom. <laughs> that's true.
1: Yeah, this week we're going to be looking at... Grindelows. Grindelows, Yes. <laughs> So make sure you wear your gloves because they bite.
0: I was thinking another thing about, I guess, respect and mentorship and just allowing the teachers to be human is an acknowledgement on the part of the teachers that they will make mistakes. And mm-hmm. there's a kind of humility that required, and especially for teenage years. I mean, for, for younger children, this isn't really necessary. But for teen years, I mean, there's, there's already kind of a, often a, would you say, a, a hostility brewing or like an apathy <laughs> um, among a lot of adolescents when they entered the classroom. They so, want
1: the teacher to mess up. Yeah,
0: they want it. I remember um, there was this one really, really infamous in my history uh, math teacher that I had in grade eight. And we were just constantly, constantly at odds. And there were three of us, three students in the middle of the classroom who kept a tally over the year of all the mistakes he made okay. going through equations. And it, it just um, entered my recollection this, this week when I was preparing for the episode Like I'd completely forgotten about it, but then I was like, okay, that wasn't a very nice thing of us to do, Mm -hmm. but it was because he had, um, kind of created this atmosphere of I'm always right. Mm -hmm. You guys always have to, um, shut up and listen to me. And Mm -hmm. so that didn't, didn't create a, like, we weren't very forgiving basically.
1: Yeah. It's funny to me because I'm the least rebellious person. (laughs) I think, would you say I'm not rebellious? I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. But in grade eight I also had a math teacher who we did the exact same thing for because we <laughs> disliked him so much. He was just mean. He was right. he didn't let you ever speak. And if you ever corrected him or you ever asked a question, he would just say, Well, it's in the textbook. And we we were kids. Like we weren't at an age where we could fully understand something. Or if something was too easy and we'd say, Hey, we all get this. Why are you making us keep practice it? He'd be he was very a very mean person. And didn't like him, kept a Tally, but
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would never do something like that as a grown up because I mean, now we have more empathy about we don't know what the teacher was going through and all that That's kind true. of stuff. But as a kid, you, you have to kind of present the front that, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, you're starting, it's kind of an uphill battle for a lot of teachers, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And another thought I had with regards to modeling behavior and teachers is the actual staff environment between teachers, mm-hmm. you know, the way that they interact with each other filters down to the kids a lot. And it's a, sure. it's not one on one mentorship, but it's kind of a collective modeling because Mm -hmm. the school is like a mini society in itself it's true it's like these oh this is how grown-ups behave yeah so students will mirror that
1: yeah I'm taking a course on the future of education I think I've mentioned it before but the current semester chapter that I'm on is about teaching and what makes a good teacher and there was this expert on the subject and he was saying well it really depends on the school and on the environment and who you're teaching but overall one of the key things he said was that the teachers need to remember that they're not individuals that they're within a community, within a school community, and that they're not alone and that they can't just isolate their lessons from all the other teachers. And they can't model, as you said, isolation. They need to model community and collaboration and and amenity between the other teachers in the school. And I was also looking into mentorship between teachers. Mm. And apparently that's incredibly effective if there's a new teacher in a school, an older one or a more experienced one takes them under their wing, it retains the teachers and it Creates just a better academic environment for everyone involved. Right. Yeah. You see that with,
0: did you ever have a student teacher? Mm-hmm. Was it like that? Was it a, you got to see the mentorship in front of your eyes or?
1: Sometimes, yeah. but sometimes, you no. Know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I actually really liked the atmosphere that my high school teachers showed amongst themselves. There was, um, they were always kind of popping in and out of each other's classrooms. Mm-hmm. And it's always like an Easter egg. It's like when you're watching the Marvel movie, you're like Spider Man's in this one too. <laughs> It's like, what is, what is the math teacher doing in here? And it's, That's yeah. so mind-blowing to you as a kid. Mm-hmm. Actually, in, um, in university, I think there's a little bit more kind of uh, segregation. Yeah, of for professors, sure. Which, I mean, it makes more sense, but still.
1: Yeah, our high I school, school had pods. pods so yeah. it would be the English pod, the math pod, and so on. <laughs> but there was one of my English teachers, they would just always have the door open between the classrooms and just <laughs> yeah. talk while we were working. <laughs> it always cracked me up. But then sometimes if your friend was in the next door classroom, the friends would mingle too.
0: Well, that sounds...
1: It wasn't productive, <laughs> but it was because we were in like an advanced English. Then there was just a, like a high school level English oh, class. I see. And it was our friends he used to be in the advanced ones. They'd come over and like just take the lessons with us. It was, it was fun. I feel like I'm getting really off topic. Today. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, moving on to mentorship between children in school. Mm-hmm. I was thinking that it's, a, it's a very positive when there's more kind of mingling between different age groups. Mm-hmm. And two examples came to my mind, one positive, one negative was in my elementary school, we did something called Book Buddies.
1: We did Book Buddies too. Which
0: is when you had a, a class of younger children. I think they were, well, actually it was every grade was involved. So it was mm-hmm. like the grade twos were involved with, with Book Buddies with the grade fives, grade ones with grade fours and so on. Mm-hmm. And it was basically one grade five kid paired off with one grade two kid. They would go somewhere. They had a weird amount of freedom to just go yeah, where they you wanted. Yeah, just go
1: anywhere in the school and like...
0: read with them. And yeah. I used to love it. I used to think it was great.
1: Yeah, it was so cool. I remember trying to like track down my book buddy at some point along the lines. So oh. I was like, I wonder where she's at now. Never was able to find her. You had her. the same one every time. We did for a couple years. Yeah, we mixed then it up. Then it would kind of mix up. Yeah, but I remember. I mean, I only was a book buddies with her in grade one and two. But she was. I remember her telling me about this club she was going to join in high school. And then I joined that club in high school. Ooh. And it stuck with me from grade one and two.
0: Oh, so you were actually a book buddy? Like, you were a small one? Yeah, I, small never did, book I buddy. Was, ne- was never a small one. I guess one.
1: you weren't in Canada. Yeah. You were which a small did you one.
0: prefer? Like, which did you think was more beneficial to you?
1: Hmm. Probably the small book buddy. Yeah. But I really liked being a big book buddy. But it didn't happen all of our years as we were older. So I had less of an experience with that.
0: Yeah. I always thought that it was a great advantage that I had that I have two younger sisters. Because mm-hmm. it's like, Kids don't really get any autonomy over anything. I mean, it's kind of a cliche in like a a movie or something. It's like, oh, he's getting his first dog. So that's really a big, Mm -hmm. big deal. But pet's not that big a deal. You don't have Mm -hmm. to do that much for it. So um, yeah, I I think Book Buddies is really good. And another example I had was for some reason at all my schools, the playground, there were pretty much two playgrounds and they were segregated between the younger Mm -hmm. kids had one playground and the older kids had one. And I understand why, because it's to minimize accidents, Mm -hmm. but also... Come on, the playgrounds are supervised anyway, so there's not going to be t- too much roughhousing. Yeah. So it it always created this, this kind of like weird um, taboo or like excitement when you were actually like <laughs> playing around with a younger kid or an older kid mm-hmm. or when you got to sit beside them on a bus.
1: That's true. Yeah, I definitely think that's crucial to developing children's autonomy, as you said, and their confidence and themselves as a human, hmm. because... How we learn best, as we'll get to later in the episode, is by modeling other people. Yeah. And so if you're just only exposed to kids your age, for the most part, you're not really advancing that effectively because you're just modeling a bunch of people doing the same thing. But if you're exposed to those older kids or adults or community members, then you're going to be able to model better behaviors or stronger behaviors or interests more effectively.
0: Another thought I had was not just... Like mentorship via the diversity of age groups, but also diversity of interests and backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So, like, I had the thought in my head of like Drake and Josh, or those movies mm-hmm. where the nerd and the jock kind of uh, tutor each other. Mm-hmm. One's teaching the other one to get good grades or to pass the class, <laughs> yeah. and the other one's teaching the other one to get girls or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know how often that happens in real life, but there is, there is definitely the segregation. I mean, cliques aren't what they used to be for sure, but mm-hmm. it's kind of like in a lot of schools, the only chance you get to be in a small group setting with other kids is in class when you have a project or something and mm-hmm. usually you get to choose that. So you're just going to choose your friends. So extracurriculars are really important because you may not be in the same math classes as one guy, mm-hmm. but maybe you both really like poetry. So if you have a poetry mm-hmm. club, you can kind of bounce ideas off each other in there.
1: I like that because teachers aren't always going to be able to... There's one teacher for every two kids or something. Like, there's always going to be more kids than there are teachers, even in the solo scene. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the key ways to develop kids and as good community members is by partnering them with people in the community, because then you could do, okay, these kids are interested in gardening, or there's an exploratory, we did that in middle school, where you'd go to a senior's home where you'd go and pick up trash with different community members and build relationships and integrate yourself into your place a little bit better and also develop your interests and you switch it up a little bit. Every few weeks you'd switch to a different topic, but I think that'd be a key way of allowing more one-on-one or at least like one-on-three experience.
0: No, I agree. And I also think it helps make the kids feel safe in environments outside of school and mm-hmm. home, which is obviously something that, I mean, there's been books written about it today, um, helicopter parenting and just the, mm-hmm. the lack of play on the streets and kind of freedom in a town that kids have. And we know why that is. And there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of modern knowledge which supports that. But I, mm-hmm. I do think that modern knowledge can actually be, doesn't have to be kind of counter to the old fashioned freedoms that a lot of kids had. It can be, it can complement it and it can, you know, make things safe, but also free for kids. As we mm-hmm. talked about that, that balance last week that needs to be struck.
1: Mm-hmm. We were talking about earlier today amongst ourselves that We don't need to just like describe, okay, neighborhoods are unsafe. You can say, okay, neighborhoods are unsafe. Why? How can we fix that? How can we get kids back to this point of freedom, but even better, even safer? And I think that's important in our thinking because often when we hear the news, we say, oh, well, it's not safe to do this or, oh, this food's bad for you. It's like, but why is it all of a sudden bad for you to eat this food? Or why is it all of a sudden bad for you to go into this lake? Pollution, GMOs, whatever it is.
0: It's all so, learning opportunities as well for, yeah, for kids. For sure. What do you want to talk about next? <laughs>
1: the organism of the week.
0: Oh, the organism. Okay.
1: Because, okay. So here's my image of the organism of the week. It's not actually blue. I just couldn't find a black marker.
0: Okay. So the, it, the mongoose.
1: Can you describe it for those at home?
0: Yes. It is a four-legged mammal mm-hmm. with a face kind of like a fox. The face is weirdly really well-drawn. There's a lot of Thank shading, you. which is weirdly not well done. Thank a very you. long and thick club like tail, mm. and it looks rather agile.
1: Yes. So a mongoose. I didn't know much about them until today.
0: I'll be honest, I knew the name and I knew there was a creature. I didn't know that this creature was the mongoose.
1: It doesn't look like what I thought a mongoose was. I or thought a mongoose kind of goose. was a bit more platypusy or goosey. But it just kind of looks like a fox. Yeah. Fox. It looks like our cat, Oliver.
0: That's very, really, really helpful like, to yeah. the listeners.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know who Oliver
0: is. But yeah, it looks like Oliver.
1: So just picture Oliver. So it's a small mammal, as you said, but it's semi-aquatic.
0: Ooh. Ooh. Hence the tail.
1: Yeah. And there's 34 species of mongoose. So there's a bunch of different types. And they live kind of all over. They're just little critters. They're seven inches for the smallest ones. Some of them are two feet.
0: That's what I was imagining, though. Seven inches. That sounds more magical to me.
1: I know. It's like a house hippo. It's pretty cool. (laughs) Um, The reason I picked the mongoose is because they have mentorships amongst each other. So sometimes they are social creatures, and sometimes they just live on their own, but they teach each other stuff, including an alarm call. So if one of them, even if they're one of the, the free mongoose who don't interact with other humans, if they sense danger... They still sound an alarm call because they've been taught growing up that if you're in danger, let everyone know around just in case there's another mongoose nearby. They're threatened, but they're also threatening other species because they're crazy predators, apparently, and they eat a lot of meat. They're omnivores, but they're mainly carnivores. Mongoose. Pretty cool guys. I like them. Some of them live in treetops. Some of them live in holes.
0: That's a big variation. I know. But what a great tie-in to the episode. Thank you. How does she do it?
1: (laughs) Weeks and weeks of practice.
0: Do you practice the organism of the week by yourself? No. What do you want to talk about next? (laughs) 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 That's a really great transition. Back
1: to the question of what's next. We can talk about cool tangible teaching techniques.
0: Sure, the CTTT.
1: Yeah. So when I was thinking about ways that teachers can teach tangibly, I thought the internet would be crawling with examples and ideas for teachers. Hmm. It's not. So I had to dig into my past experience and come up with some new ideas.
0: Yeah. you Once you told me that the internet was no help, and I didn't really figure it would be,
1: because
0: mm-hmm. the internet tends to love the internet is one thing about it. So I yeah. just assumed that all the techniques would be remote learning, they a- were asymmetrical teaching and all this stuff. Yeah. So I I kind of looked into my experience as well, but I came up with really broad categories. And unfortunately, I don't think it's anything that reinvents the wheel. So uh, I I apologize to the listeners for that. But it's less like cool, new, tangible teaching techniques and more like cool, tangible teaching techniques that work. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of teaching techniques I don't really think work. And I know I'm just talking through my lens, but I tried to... Remember also how my whole class was affected by it, and you can mm-hmm. tell when you're in the class. It's kind of like when you're watching a movie. It's tra- you can tell when everybody's transfixed by something.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the first example that I came up with, and these are all kind of for all subjects, and mm-hmm. I guess just doesn't even have to be in school. But I kind of was had one in mind for each one. So this mm-hmm. one I was thinking about math, science, more kind of boring and abstract um, topics like that. Mm-hmm. The first one is showing students the the end game of a topic or a subject. And this can be as short term as saying, these are the kind of problems that you're going to be solving by the end of the semester. Mm-hmm. Just a really, really complicated equation that the kids at the start of the year have no idea what it is. Yeah. Or as long term as saying, here's someone who works in the field. This is why you need to know this. This, mm-hmm. is, this is what you can actually be doing with it. And I think this does a few things. One, it presents the topic of the concept in a way which the kids don't understand at all, completely mm-hmm. goes over their heads. And I think in a way that can sometimes be more enthralling, more intriguing, more interesting than if it's kind of incremental at the start and they don't they know a little bit about it mm-hmm. each time, but there's something that they don't know because then they focus on that one thing they don't know. For sure. And it also answers the question of, what do I need this for? Why am I doing this? Which mm-hmm. Pike schools, and rightly so.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I find the context allows you to know the questions to ask. Because sometimes when you start from scratch and don't know where you're going with it, you say, I don't even know what I don't know. Mm. But if you know what you don't know, to start with. Yeah, exactly. It allows you to work towards that and ask the right questions. Another example I had aside
0: from meth was... Like, different languages. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know a word of German, but I hear the language right now, and I'm like, that sounds so magical. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm learning French, I'm halfway through it, mm-hmm. the magic starts to wear off a little bit. Yeah, so things, when, when they're presented to you, like, awesomely, mm-hmm. and students will approach them also awesomely. It's yeah. like Jack Black coming out again. Yeah. What it is about this, this is the hot seat.
1: Yeah, you were talking about the experts in the field and stuff, and one of my ideas was either co-teaching on subjects, which I've had throughout my education, or guest speakers, or field trips to places, go to the science museum, go to the farm or what have you. And co-teaching in particular, I find incredible because I realized it wasn't university the first time this was introduced to me. Rather, my grade 10 science classes were co-taught. There were four teachers, one for each subject, one for physics, chemistry, we did astronomy, and then we did, what else, We did biology. So it was all of the upper year teachers So you know that they're experts and it made you respect them more than just this one teacher kind of fumbling through the four subjects Mm. that they know a little bit in each. Rather, we had the experts in each one, which was really great. And I found it really made stuff stick. It was also when you're in normal school, you're there for a year. So if you have the same teacher for a year, you're going to get a little bit boring of their style of teaching. And so it really mixed things up a lot. And I liked it.
0: Yeah. Also, this is slightly off topic, but I was thinking about a question for next week could be about self-teaching methods, especially for people outside of school, because we haven't really tackled mm-hmm. adult learning yet. So it's like, how can we keep?
1: I think that's an excellent question. Keep, keep
0: that same energy from, from high school or university or whatever it may be.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: My next point is kind of a continuation of my first. It's just about inspiring students. And mm-hmm. I had in mind for this more, more artsy classes. Mm-hmm. I remember in university, my favorite course was an art class, and I would always get that early. And so would many other students. And before the time that was scheduled, the professor would have set up a giant projection on the front screen of all the paintings that we were going to be uh, studying that day mm-hmm. um, on kind of a cycle. So they'd like, you'd see them all, but mm-hmm. each one would take the full screen. And that was just really, really inspiring to walk into the room being all dark, except for these giant paintings by mm-hmm. all the masters. And similarly, in high school, when we were studying the Odyssey uh, on a little bit of a lesser scale, my World history teacher would write on the board just a quote from whatever we'd be reading that day because mm-hmm. we kind of read through the book as a class on the whiteboard and he mm-hmm. wouldn't be analyzing it. He would just write it for people who got that early. And mm-hmm. I thought that was a really nice touch because it doesn't take that much effort,
1: mm-hmm. but it
0: just um, sets the tone really in a really yeah, nice way.
1: That's really lovely. A creative technique that I was thinking of were two things. One was I took a course in high school and it was theater, just a theater course, but it was in French. And probably the most effective technique I've ever used for learning French was we had to, for our final project, write and perform a play. So we had to write it from scratch with stage directions and everything and then perform it. And for years after that, that was in grade 9 or 10, my friends and I would be quoting this play in French that we wrote, yeah. which what else can I quote in French? Not much. <laughs> but it was super effective. And I thought that was really great and tangible in a way that It really made the topic stick, and I think it could be applied for languages, but also for other creative subjects. So perform this book or perform an interpretation of this painting or what have you. So it could be applied to other things other than just language learning. And I think it really makes you stick because you have to memorize your lines and Mm -hmm. you have to conceptualize it in space.
0: Yeah, and also things get solidified by the observation of the rest of your class Mm -hmm. watching you. You know, for that, sure, that burns it into your mind. We yeah. all remember word for word those ill-fated presentations from our pasts. We
1: do, it's true. And <laughs> another <laughs> creative technique that I read about was is used in Waldorf schools, and it's getting kids to illustrate their notes and their notebooks because we all do that, but it's not allowed for is it's not encouraged illegal, but it's not encouraged to doodle in your notes but in Waldorf teaching techniques it's sometimes encouraged for kids to illustrate their notes yeah and it allows them to have pride in their work It's because it becomes a bit more beautiful it's a little it bit does. more you've you've embodied it and I found because I read about like doodling when I was in university and I and it's effective for memorizing stuff is just doing doodles of like as you're kind of hearing the information and interpreting it in these abstract ways and it makes stuff stick a little bit more.
0: Well, I would say maybe it's that sometimes when professors are saying things or mm-hmm. even a slideshow or, or a PowerPoint is showing words, you are trying to write so quickly that you're not mm-hmm. actually taking in what you're writing. That's happened to me before. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're genuinely listening to them, then you, you, you almost don't even have to look at the page to be mm-hmm. kind of drawing it. You know, it takes a little bit less time and effort to, to draw something it does to to copy down the script. Yeah. And I would say... I mean, not every kid is a doodler.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I kind of flip back and forth. Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. But mm-hmm. what you said about making the notes beautiful is is definitely a thing that I like. And it's something that's caught on big time in the last few years, right? Mm-hmm. With like Studygram.
1: Think,
0: Studygram, is that what mm-hmm. it's called? Yes. Yeah. Th- there's whole There's whole social media tips about how to make your notes more presentable. And people might think that's superficial and it's like, oh well, they should be they should be focusing more on the content. Mm-hmm. But you know, the the presentation of it is that helps people remember it. Or at least that's been my experience. Mm-hmm. I liked what you also said about theater. That was kind of my, first, my third um, idea was just emphasizing the theater, not just of theater classes or even of, of literary classes, but just of everything. Mm-hmm. The theater, the play acting, that is education. Because it is, it is a kind of silly concept. It's like, well, mm-hmm. today we're reading this, these physics rules from 400 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, so... and. Often they do kind of a token history lesson before each scientific topic is yeah, introduced, sure. like Robert Hooke, mm-hmm. the cell. We know oh, yeah. these names and we know these dates, but it doesn't mean anything to us. And there's, there's no point really the way that it's currently taught. But I, I do think it's important to know Newton mm-hmm. and not just his laws. Yeah. So I think it would be more interesting if we kind of emphasize to the students, try and get in his mind. The drama. The drama of it. Yeah, try and, yeah. Try and get in his head. Don't just focus on the dates that he came up with these things, but really try and, mm-hmm. try and act like him, try and think like him. And it, it, it also highlights this idea of the student as, or Newton as a predecessor to everyone in the classroom,
1: mm-hmm. which
0: is, you know, it's like you're playing out your ancestors.
1: Yeah, I like that. I like that idea. One cool thing that we did in school that I think could be applied in the solo scene is I didn't actually get to do it, but both my sisters did because there was this one teacher who I never got. Anyway. Long story. But they grew monarch butterflies in the classroom all year. Mm. So they got them as little larva, and then they watched them cocoon, and then they obviously sprouted into butterflies, and they went and released them in this place. And can you imagine how cool that would be? Did you get to do something like that?
0: Well, my workplace did it every summer.
1: True. Yes. (laughs) But, yeah, this classroom, they did monarchs. One year, they did frogs. They got the little tadpoles and everything.
0: We did frogs, and we also did chicks
1: one year. That's so cool. I you didn't do anything do like that. Tricks. No, I always got skipped in those years.
0: So we did chicks, and this was the class that I was talking about on a previous week. It was a very small classroom. There was only like so we we each had a chick. Oh my goodness! But what? So we had the eggs, and we were like we were so excited. we were watching them for however mm-hmm. long. I don't remember it now. It was a long time ago, but for however long, and we had a very, a very um. Would you say like maternal teacher? She was very like, she was very close with all of us. I would say mm-hmm. we were, we were small, and there was only a few of us. And she was like that with the chicks as well. She was mm-hmm. very kind of like taking care of them. And when they were really close to hatching, she said something like, one day I just got the intuition and she, she drove to the school at night <laughs> because there were a bunch of them that weren't hatching properly. Mm-hmm. So she had to like help them out. And she was oh like, I salvaged what I could, but a few of them died, which was sad. But
1: yeah,
0: I always thought that was a really weird story.
1: But It stuck.
0: Yeah. It and it you probably stick. know
1: all about the life cycle of a chicken.
0: More than I would if I hadn't done that, yeah. most likely, yeah.
1: Exactly. So I think growing things maybe it doesn't have to be animals. I don't know the ethics of animals, but <laughs> it could be plants or it could be just cultivating something and seeing the whole life cycle of a product or of a food or a plant. Yeah. I think it's very effective in solidifying things in kids minds. But
0: I think it's it's part of the theater and it's part of the play acting mm-hmm. of making the classroom a mini version of some part of the whole world. Mini mm-hmm. version of a farm, mini version of a UN conference. Yeah. Everyone's doing the staging a debate or something like mm-hmm. that we did something like that in university right
1: yes one of us did
0: did <laughs> for, for a sustainability course we were each assigned a country mm-hmm. and we had to do how many kids were in the class like 150
1: was a lot yeah
0: um in this huge lecture halls kind of uh,
1: a full-on model un yeah but we had like the slack going and it was it was a whole thing it was, it was, very was stressful mm. yeah oh my goodness well because not for me not for you no you were an oil company, or not no- were you an oil company or an oil state I don't remember, I, don't remember.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know that you were Kenya.
1: I was Kenya. They didn't have much to say, unfortunately, but that was effective in teaching me about how to partake in a debate, because otherwise, I'd have no idea how to do it formally. Mm. And another university course that came to mind was this one where the teacher bless his heart. He was trying something. He'd every single week would do a simulation or a game or whatever and it was just his class was at a bad time so everyone was exhausted and it was really grumbly but I then went on to TA for that course for two years and from an outside perspective I realized just how effective these teaching techniques were and saw the kids actually grasping the concepts in real time and he'd do games he'd say okay one week we all like brought a dollar and we had to I think we just had to, like, come up with different tasks for each other to do to, like, try and win the most dollars by the end of the class. Mm. And they were all about leadership techniques and management techniques and, like, human interactions. Yeah. And so with the dollar one, there was real stakes because you could win a bunch of money.
0: An insight into your experience (laughs) on the the capitalist conveyor belt. That is (laughs) a business degree.
1: Yeah. But then there was other weeks when we'd do debates or we'd do presentations. We'd always have to, like okay, this week we're doing a presentation on a movie and relating it to the concepts. And he did a really excellent job. He's the one who assigned us the portfolio that I was talking about last week. Yep. So this teacher, he would always do these hands-on things. He'd go above and beyond to like, bring them into the classroom. Sometimes it would be simulations like an Everest climbing. And it was like, oh, you died. You did. You ran out of oxygen. <laughs> it, was, it was fun and it taught a lot. And I think that can be brought into the classroom at all levels, but more simulation and games. I agree
0: I do think gamification as a concept in education and just in I don't know advertising and storytelling in general just in society um, was a good idea but has maybe been taken in some like it doesn't just have to be cahoot I know and call it a day so I agree because we had a a French game called Wougarou which Mm -hmm. we used to play in elementary school and middle school yeah which I adored and I taught me the word for werewolf which I otherwise wouldn't have known exactly games can they can be a little bit more interesting and just see who can answer the questions the quickest and the Mm -hmm. best
1: yeah for sure but still that's fun points I was thinking of a point system in the classroom to an extent would be fun with like oh who answers the questions because people like racking up points even if they have no consequences for some reason and two more things that I had were outdoor learning because did you guys ever do like outdoor classrooms in your school one time yeah and I loved it yeah we had like an official outdoor classroom where the teachers would book and we'd go out sometimes and no matter what we were lear- learning out there, it was a change of scenery, and it would always stick better than when it was in the classrooms.
0: We, I mean, that's true, because I do remember the one class we had outside. It was on mm-hmm. mitosis.
1: There you go. And the other thing I was thinking, I've been watching a lot of kind of vintage movies lately, and I find in the high schools, they always have like parent nights. But I never know what they do with these parent nights. They're kind of like recitals. They're kind of, the kids are giving presentations. But I feel like a bit more of that would be fun, I know the parents right now are very busy, but ideally in the solo scene, they'd have a bit more time to attend such events and the community could come out, all the guardians and everyone's families could come out and see them presenting or doing recitals. I think that has, like, having something to work towards that's, like, tangible, I find is useful oh, for kids yes. to Oh, yes, so things. it's, like,
0: something the kids have to prepare something for. Yes. No, that is good. And it also, I liked going to school at night, mm-hmm. and um, it's humanizes the teachers as we were talking about for, mm-hmm. for mentorship because right now it's you know there's that meme about oh when I saw that teacher in the grocery store it just felt so wrong mm-hmm. but it really shouldn't like they are humans and kids shouldn't know that mm-hmm. it's not like it's funny but it's not actually that good a thing that yeah. kids think that they live there <laughs> yeah because they don't it means they're not really understanding the world mm-hmm. and school's not doing its job to to make them understand what is life what are mm-hmm. jobs who are <laughs> a, who are adults
1: I <laughs> yeah it's very true and so all of this time, we've been talking a bit about learning and more effective ways to learn. But then we asked ourselves the meta question, what is learning?
0: What is learning?
1: What you, is life?
0: Yeah, I didn't, um, I didn't go too deep into this. I started in the natural spot, which is Nintendo. Ah. Or video game, game design in general. I was thinking mm-hmm. about how each game and within each game, each level has to quickly teach the player rules, Mm -hmm. how to navigate them, and also how to provide a place where they can get really good at them. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a mini version of a classroom. Yeah,
1: that's really true.
0: And Nintendo has this kind of famous philosophy, which is a four-step philosophy. You'll see it a lot in Mario levels, where each level will have some central kind of gimmick or like animating principle. And the first step will be to introduce it. So let's say it's like spinning platforms. Mm -hmm. Um, to introduce it in a safe way. So let's say the ground underneath it just recycles you back to the start so you don't Mm -hmm. die. And then once you prove that you can get past that, it's the same thing but with genuine peril, so the safety net's kind of removed. After that, for step three, they do a twist on the concepts, maybe the platform's swinging the other other way or maybe Mm -hmm. there's enemies on it. And then for the fourth step, it's kind of like a final gauntlet or Mm -hmm. to bring it back to the school, a final exam. Mm -hmm. And what was really interesting, because I'd known this, this kind of philosophy for a long time, was that when I was researching further for this question this week, in education there's a very famous four-step theory.
1: There is, yeah. You know about that. I do, do, review, learn, apply. Yeah. That's the one you're talking about because there's a lot of learning theory.
0: There are a lot of learning theories. Yeah. (laughs) The one I had was this guy called David Kolb Mm -hmm. and he published a theory in 1984. I think he was like an educational academic Mm -hmm. and it's a circle. And it has a lot of different labels on it. So I encourage people to look it up. Mm -hmm. But it's a clockwise circle showing the four stages people go through when they're learning things. So I guess it's kind of like, what did you say? Do, review, learn, apply. Do, review, learn, apply. It is essentially that. So the first Mm -hmm. step is the observation of concrete experiences. Mm -hmm. Second step is to build theory based on that. Yeah. Third step is to form conclusions based on the theory, learn. And then fourth step is to test it in new situations, apply.
1: Yeah, the one that I'm using is based on his, but it wasn't written by him, those four words. But I think it's interesting to think about learning, and his theory is really useful, because there's no definitive what does it mean to have learned something. Does it mean you can write it on an exam? Does it mean you can kind of copy and paste it? Oh, I know it until I input that phone number into my phone, but then as soon as I input it, it's gone. Hmm. And something I learned that blew my mind is that because you always say to me, if you don't remember it, it's not useful, right?
0: Um, it co- it it's for, some, like for some ideas. things for creative ideas. Yeah, yeah, I would say that.
1: But I learned that that is not true, <laughs> because our brains sometimes forget stuff by mistake—that it doesn't want to forget, but it forgets it. No,
0: I know that. You're making me sound like such a <laughs> such a tyrant. I'm just over here like shouting things at you. Oh, if you get forget it, then
1: no, but you're I meant to forget it. I mean, it's not just you. It's a bias that a lot of people have. Right. It's called the forgetting bias, and it's that. If we forget it, it can't be important, but that's not true. So that means like learning isn't just remembering, it's Mm. embodying it. It's creating a change in the way that you see the world and interact with the world. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think that's just the way that creative people kind of uh, rationalize all the things they forget. (laughs) Because you have so many ideas for poems, for stories, for characters, for lines, Mm -hmm. or for paintings, or for films, or whatever it may be, or for songs, Mm -hmm. and you forget a lot of them, obviously,
1: and it's it's kind of a justification not to write stuff down. It's like, oh, That's you shouldn't true. write it down because if it's good, it's, it's, it's it. like a
0: mental filter. Is what yeah. it's is what it tries to be, I think. Yeah, but also it means that when you forget something, you don't you don't cry over the spilt milk, it's true. the spilt ideas, mm-hmm. the spilt oils. Um, something else for this, I was thinking about what is learning, is the uh, the elasticity of the brain that I've been reading about, which just fascinates me. Mm-hmm. I know this is something that pretty much everyone is is interested in is how can I maximize my brain? How can I stay alert, stay nimble, stay learning through adulthood? Mm-hmm. What kind of little luminosity phone games can I do that will keep me at the brain age of a 25-year-old or whatever it yeah. may be? So I thought that could be a question for next week. How can we kind of form habits?
1: I like that. How, how,
0: how does forming good habits affect learning or something like that?
1: Yeah, I also wanted to ask the question for next week, what is a good teacher?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. good. Because it's not just one type. And this just came to my mind as well. In high school, when they would always say, we're not really about teaching. It's not the goal of high school isn't really for teaching you the things. It's teaching you how to learn. Mm -hmm. And I always took issue with that in high school. And I think I still do. What do you think about it?
1: I think we need to know how to learn. But I I think we should be learning things in high school.
0: Yeah. And I I think we should learn how to learn earlier.
1: Yes, I agree. And we should be learning things as we learn to learn. Yeah. I have a good quote about learning. That I think summarizes this question very well and it says learning is a process that is often not under our control and is wrapped up with the environment we inhabit and our relationships we make it involves encountering signals from the senses attending to them looking for connections and meanings and framing them so that we may act very nice thank you but that's what learning is to me it's making connections and being able to act upon them later because we sometimes you can act upon it immediately recall it on a test or even apply it tactically like in a lab or in a setting where you have to like perform. Yeah. But to learn something really, I think has to be a change in the way you perceive the world and the way that you perform tasks and create understanding of new inputs. Internalize it. Mm-hmm. Nice. So thank you all for listening. And If you'd like to follow us on Instagram or TikTok, we're there. We also have our zine for sale on our website. And there's all the links to everything down in the description. So just just look there. See you all next week. Bye.